Ahlan dear listener. I'm Michael Rakowitz, artist and director of Radio Silence, a broadcast about Iraq and its displacements, presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia, with major support from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hummingbird Foundation. Project collaborators include the Prometheus Radio Project, as well as many agencies and nonprofits that work on refugee and veteran issues and community media. Radio Silence is made in collaboration with the vibrant Iraqi community of Philadelphia and Iraq War veterans who are part of Warrior Writers, a Philadelphia-based community of military service members, artists, allies, and healers dedicated to creativity and wellness. Bajat al-Dawahe, dubbed the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife, Haifa Abdul-Qadr, also a broadcaster, arrived as refugees in the city of Brotherly Love in 2009. The program became a portrait of Iraq in miniature as Bajat fell ill with a serious respiratory ailment after our first recording session, necessitating an emergency tracheostomy. The voice of Iraq lost its voice. Months later, Bajat Abdul-Wahed passed away. Our host has become a ghost, another casualty of the war. At his funeral, Bajat's friends spoke about how our project was even more important now. The show must go on, they insisted, to illustrate just how much of the country was slipping away, to resist cultural amnesia, to hold on to the best of what Iraq was and what their new lives as Americans would be. And so we begin episode two. Mute an adjective that means refraining from speech or temporarily speechless. For example, while he was in the hospital, Iraq's celebrated broadcaster was mute. Another meaning, characterized by an absence of sound, quiet. For example, before Iraq's musicians were given permission to leave the country, they were told to teach their songs to those who remained so that the nation's musical traditions would not become mute. As a noun, mute can refer to a clamp placed over the bridge of a stringed instrument, like an oud, to deaden the resonance without affecting the vibration of the strings. Let's go back to that one recording session with our dearly departed anchor, Bajat Abdelwahed, the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife Haifa Abdelkader. It is January 2016, just a few weeks before Bajat would collapse from a respiratory ailment that would steal his voice forever. (laughs) Haifa. (laughs) Haifa. What are you making? Haifa has disappeared into the kitchen, cooking even though we've asked her not to trouble herself. Most of us have already eaten dinner. Hostage-tality. As we begin calling for her, one of the guests, Mohammed, asks if we've ever heard of another Haifa. We have in Lebanon a famous singer. Haifa Wehbe, a Lebanese singer. Ten years earlier, she had a hit with Busal Wawa, which translates to mean kiss the boo boo. Wawa, Busal Wawa, Lema Bistul Wawa, Shilto Sarilwa Wabah, 
Where the boo-boo is exactly is a topic of some debate. Bajat asked me if I know what wawa means. I think they called Wawa because it is very simple uh, pronounce Wawa. Like Fafa. Like Papa. Like Baba. Baba. Now it's difficult to hear, dear listener, but at this point, buried under so many voices speaking at the same time, Muhammad mentions the coincidence of the scandalous Wawa being spelled and pronounced exactly the same as a chain of convenience stores and gas stations that are ubiquitous throughout Philadelphia. Wawa's your choice for great-tasting hoagies, always fresh and built to order. Now let Wawa custom-build a home-style hot roast beef or hearty meatball, junior, shorty, or classic for you. This is my Wawa, and this is my hot roast beef classic. From the boo-boo to the Wawa gas station selling Iraqi oil. The gas station's name comes from the site of the company's first milk plant and corporate headquarters in the Wawa, Pennsylvania area. The name of the town Wawa is in turn derived from an Ojibwe word that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow attributes to mean Canada goose in his song of Hiawatha. Only he was wrong. The pronunciation was wewe, and it meant snow goose. From the Ojibwe word meaning snow goose to the wrong English translation, which adds the prefix Canada, which itself comes from the St. Lawrence Iroquoian word kanata, meaning village or settlement. From Iroquois to Iraqi, from Wewe to Wawa. Muted cultures. Dying languages mistranslated. And now here's the weather for Iraq. Around Baghdad, moderate temperatures persist. Down south near Basra and Unkasr, there's sandstorms created by military vehicles that disrupted the crust of the desert last decade. Up north, near Mosul, strong winds becoming cyclonic and displacing culture. Expect less tomorrow. And that's your forecast. In December 2016, I met up with Mohammed, one of the guests in Bajat's living room, nearly a year before when we discussed Bus al-Wawa. The setting is a Dunkin' Donuts in northeast Philadelphia, blasting Christmas songs. Our conversation naturally turns to music. Only this time, Mohammed tells me about the sounds that were evacuated from his country. Her, a big heritage of, of songs with, with stories. Did you, do you know the story of Fog al-Nakhal Fog? Mohammed begins by talking about a song, Fog al-Nakhal, a popular Iraqi composition yeah. that can be read story. two ways. No, this is the story because the songer, when he sings this, he seems he, he, he's talking about Fog al-Nakhal. Uh-huh. There is something... 
on the, the, the tree, yeah. on the palm tree. But actually he's talking about his lover. Yeah. Fog in Mechil. There is a, a, a lover girl upstairs, upstairs yeah. and uh, maybe he's talking about balcony, like uh, Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. To pronounce it as Fogel Nachal is to say above the palm trees. To pronounce it as Fog in Nachil is to say above us is a lover. Like Busalwawa, there are multiple interpretations of what this means. Above us there is a lover. Is it a song praising God above? Or is it true that the original composers were writing about a doomed romance, about a poor young man who falls in love with a girl that belongs to a rich family after seeing her on their big house's balcony and exchanging glances? Another interpretation is that Fogal Nachal, above the date palms, is about being as high as the date palms. Ecstasy. Yes, some even suggest that it might be a veiled reference to an orgasm. As Muhammad explains next, the Iraqi Jewish musicians, considered amongst the best in Iraq at that time, were asked to transmit and teach their skills to other musicians before they were allowed to depart Iraq. A transmission of skills to avoid an interrupted transmission. It's, uh, when it's 1950, when Iraqi Jewish uh, decided or forced to, to move from Iraq to, to Palestine. I think uh, the Prime Minister at that time, it's um, uh, Nuri Said. So he asked all the musicians, the Jewish musicians, they are very talented at that time. So he asked them to, to teach Arab people who has talented. Ev- everyone has to teach one against give them their passport to leave. Yeah. So after this group, there is a, a famous group of Arab came to the, you know, to the, to the broadcasting. Like, uh, like uh, uh, Yusuf Omar, is the very famous uh, Makam singer. And I think uh, Nazim al-Ghazali, same, same thing with this group. The exodus of Iraqi Jews began in the late 1940s as a result of riots and reprisals leading up to and after the establishment of the State of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba. Today, it is believed less than 10 members of the once 150,000-strong community remain in the entire country. As you will hear in this next segment, Radio Baghdad, the very station where Bajat Abdel Wahed read the news, was founded by the brothers Salah and Daoud Kuwaiti, two Iraqi Jewish musicians who also put together the station's musical ensemble. Tuning Baghdad, a project of Iraqi Jewish curator Rajin Basha, brings together a growing archive of rare video footage audio clips, and historical information on Iraqi Jewish musicians and the music scene that was displaced from Baghdad in the late 1940s and early 1950s. 
The last generation of Iraqi Jewish musicians who performed in Baghdad are now in their 80s and 90s, including Basha's father, an avid oud player. They represent an era when an unusually large number of Iraqi Jews were composing and performing Iraqi maqams to the public. Recently, an earnest revival of this musical culture is growing within the generation of their grandchildren. Basha's astounding six-episode radio show on Tuning Baghdad, which you can find at tuningbaghdad.net and clocktower.org, brings together the tangential developments found in what she refers to as musical citizenship. Regine has sent me an audio letter. Let's open it and listen. Um, so you wanted me to speak about the evacuation of the Iraqi musicians at that time, the Iraqi Jewish musicians. And there was a large Jewish community in Iraq, of course, but really uh, during the time this community lived in Iraq, there was no such thing as a hyphenated term such as Iraqi Jew. So when I speak about the Iraqi Jewish musicians, I'm really speaking about maqam musicians because many of the instrumentalists that uh, played the maqam in Iraq, um, many of them happened to be Jewish. And that really came out of a social moor where um, when music was played in any kind of ceremonial or ritual way, the singers were almost always Muslim because of the Quranic tradition of singing. And the instrumentalists were often non-Muslim. So that meant Jews, Christians, Kurds, whatever. There was a very... Um, from what I understand, a very prominent school for the blind in Baghdad called Dar Muasset Alimian. And this school happened to train many of the uh, students in the oud and the kanun and, you know, many of the Ottoman and Middle Eastern instruments. So many of the students that came out of the blind school became virtuosic musicians. So when you look at history books, you'll just see a lot of blind musicians in the pictures. It's really impressive. <clears throat> One of them in particular, Salim Daoud, a violin player, um, uh, was, was just known throughout the entire Middle East. There was a child prodigy uh, kanun player named Abraham Salman, who I did have the pleasure of meeting and watching him play the kanun, which is like a kind of um, lap zither string instrument. He has passed away about a year ago, but, you know, he started playing the kanun when he was about five and, um, again, was quite renowned throughout the whole Middle East. Blind musicians. The muting or disappearance of one sense and the enhancement of another through talent and skill. It makes me think of the beautiful blindness of radio, dear listener, where we are not overburdened by an image, but you can construct one in your own minds. It makes me wonder how you see Bajat when you hear his voice. If you saw him, I wonder if he would look the way you think he sounds. The amazing thing about hearing Bajat's voice, recorded in his living room, is that it sounds identical to how he sounded on the radio in Baghdad. But that is not because his living room has the antiseptic acoustics of a recording studio. No, it is the opposite. His voice carries with it the intimacy of a friend speaking with you in his living room. As Regine goes on to explain, 
Many of these musicians, like Abraham Salman, left behind their audiences when they had to leave Iraq, like Bajat. They were therefore relegated to playing intimate concerts in their living rooms in cities like Tel Aviv. When he left for Israel, he emigrated in the early 50s. Um, he really left behind kind of his audience and then arrived and only ended up playing to like a few people in his living room. There's a lot of uh, attachment to these particular musicians who had left. Those who know about the Makam tradition know that many of the Jewish mus musicians were the ones who wrote most of these um, new Makams. In 1936, there's two brothers who set up a radio station. It was the Iraq's first radio station, and they were called Daoud and Salah el-Kuwaiti. And the Kuwaiti brothers, uh, who were Jewish, you know, brought Um Kalthum, they brought everybody um, to play live on radio, and they also wrote a lot of new compositions. So the Kuwaiti brothers, I think, really held the anchor of the music scene. But there's a famous story about the Brothers Kuwaiti, and that's when they were fleeing Iraq, when they were leaving in like the late 40s. Uh, the Prince of Kuwait kind of contacted them and offered them residence in Kuwait so that they wouldn't leave the region. I think many of them were, many of the musicians were begging them to stay as well. Um, there's another story that the radio station would go silent on Yom Kippur, which is a Jewish holiday. Um, and that's not because it was honoring the holiday, it was because everybody in the radio station was gone <laughs> at synagogue. Um, so that just gives you an idea of just like how part of the culture um, these musicians were, but the Jews in general, how part of the production of um, contemporary culture um, the Jewish community was a part of. So there was a real rupture in the music scene after, let's say, the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, it was like a hole. I think there needed to be a lot of retraining of different Makam traditions. And later on, as Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athist Party came to prominence, one of the things that Saddam purportedly did was erase all the Jewish names from music history. And though that seemed to be effective at the time, there are many Iraqis who are kind of trying to revive that era or seeking out the story. Um, there's a great film that just came out actually called On the Bank of the Tigris. There's also a musician that is uh, here in New York, Amir al-Safar, who um, is very well versed in the Makam tradition. And he, he's also very much um, invested in making those reconnective ties back to that community. So there is hope, and, and it's been really great to meet all of these people, and it's not entirely silent as it had been. I asked Regine to speak about Afaki Afaki, a wedding song that captures perfectly the tension between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I love it. The lyrics are passive-aggressive, and the song conjures the anxiety-ridden atmosphere of weddings as two families are fused into one. But as Regine explains, the song's structure and language illustrates the porousness and pluralism of Iraqi society in the earlier part of the 20th century. This song, which is a little more tongue-in-cheek, translates into, like, bravo to you. And it's this really funny song that the groom's mother 
sings to the bride-to-be. You know, there's this whole litany of the groom's mother saying, like, bravo to you, you tricked him, you took him, you gave him kebab, you stroked his hair in the moonlight, you did this and you did that. <laughs> you got my son, you took him away from me, essentially. And, you know, it's a, it was a kind of a folkloric song as well. Everybody sang this, not only the Iraqi Jews to, you know, within their own households, but this song was sung amongst um, Muslim and Christian families as well. Whenever there was a party that needed to happen and the household was too small to hold all the people, it was very common for uh, the neighbor to host the party for them. So that could have easily taken place in a Muslim family's household where a Jewish traditional ceremony was taking place. Another thing to say about this song, it is sung in a particular Judeo-Arabic dialect. Different communities in Iraq obviously have different dialects, and it's not just religiously determined, but also regionally determined. So most popular songs or maqam songs are sung in the Muslim dialect. That's like the literary dialect. But some of the Muslim singers would sing this song, Afaki Afaki, in the Jewish dialect. And I think that's just kind of about proximity and about knowing one another so well, also the, the humor related to that. So it just goes to show you that this, these songs just kind of get lovingly sung and passed around and are not necessarily related or in a ghettoized way um, to the Iraqi Jewish community. That was Regine Basha with Tuning Baghdad. You can learn more by reading Regine's essay titled Tuning In at Radio Silence. In other news on silent spaces and lost sounds, we hear from warrior writer and Iraq War veteran Kevin Basil, who offers a bizarre but beautiful story about a disappearing instrument of mourning in the U.S. Armed Forces. Imagine you're in the Army, standing in mourning formation. Your name gets called. You step out of formation and answer to your sergeant major. He tells you, you're going to be the bugler for the funeral team he's putting together. Thing is, you don't play the bugle. Not a problem, your sergeant major says. This actually happened to me in 2006. A shortage of buglers forced the army to begin using more recordings of taps at veterans and service members' funerals. A contractor even developed a device called ceremonial bugle. Like a trumpet mute, it fits into the bell of an actual bugle. The operator pushes a button, raises the instrument to his pursed lips, and stands silently as it plays. I performed like this at some 20 funerals. And, unfortunately, taps hasn't sounded the same to me ever since. At my grandfather's funeral, he was a Korean War veteran, I couldn't focus on the poignancy of the bugle's tone. Instead, I found myself questioning whether it was an imitation, a recording, which it was. Over several years of writing and rewriting, I found I could only get to the truth of my experience through fiction, through putting made-up characters into this situation. The story I wrote, entitled The Bugler, begins with the following sentence. Sergeant Jenkins, who couldn't play the bugle or trumpet, 
or any instrument at all, had just been assigned to play taps at a World War II veteran's funeral. Yeah, so it goes. While the details of Sergeant Jenkins' experience may differ significantly from my own, the conflicted emotions running beneath the surface are shared. Silently, we played our instrument. We performed. That was Kevin Basil of Warrior Writers. When I think of the dispersal of Iraq's musicians and their talents, I think of sound waves moving further and further away from their source. Does it fade, losing information and volume? Or does it sound more like a continuous echo? Or maybe a delay? Whatever it is, Regine's audio letter and Kevin's story make me realize there's no time to delay. I must get back home. Something has been mute for too long. Dear listener, I'm in my studio in Chicago, and I've just excavated a dream that's laid fallow for nine years. In 2008, I purchased an Iraqi oud from a man in Amman named Hussam. The oud, he explained, was made by the famed luthier Mohammed Fadal Hussein, who died in his studio in Baghdad earlier that year at the age of 92. On this vintage video, you can hear him making that very same oud in 1992. Oud with the sound of its own making. Hussam explained to me that the oud was made from Iraqi sisam, a rosewood that grew in Iraq, but had become more and more rare as the Iraq war ravaged that country's landscape. While it wasn't extinct, it was endangered. And the rosewood that grew back was different, softer, and not suitable for use in making an oud. I've delayed taking lessons, but I've tuned it up for you right here and now. Hear the sound reverberating inside, ricocheting from one fragment of a dead tree to another. A sound from something that disappeared a long time ago, like the light of a star we can still see in the sky, even though it's been dead for thousands of years. Like Bajat's broadcasts attached to radio waves, which may still be bouncing around space, heard for the first time by extraterrestrial ears far, far away. Oh, Bajat, I wish you could hear.
Bajat Abdel Wahed, like Dani George Yuhana, my friend and former director of the National Museum of Iraq, who passed away in 2011. Dani actually sidelined as a drummer in a band called 99%, which was Baghdad's best Deep Purple and Pink Floyd cover band. Oh, Dani. Oh, Bajat. I wish you were here. That's it for today's episode. Radio Silence is curated by Elizabeth Thomas. Special thanks to our project manager, Abigail Satinsky, to our sound engineer, Nate Sandberg, to Warrior Writers and their director, Lavella Kalika, to all our Iraqi participants in the resettlement agencies that connected us to them, and to Jane Golden and everyone at Mural Arts. Our deepest gratitude and love to Bajat Abdelwahed and his wife, Haifa Abdelkader. Original music for Radio Silence is composed by Hana Khouri and performed with the Radio Silence Ensemble. Join us next week when we talk about the hushed and the secret. Until then, good night, dear listener. For Radio Silence, I'm Michael Rakowitz, and this was Iraq. <laughs>